Good morning, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffBeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on February 13th of 2011 under the headline, Shipwrecked Fur Traders Walked from Oregon coast to Louisiana. Here we go. More than 200 years ago, in late August of 1808, four men stood on the shore of an island near the mouth of the Umpqua River and looked out to sea. An empty ocean stared back at them. The ship that had carried them all the way from London to Oregon, the 170-ton sea otter, was gone, wiped off the face of the sea with every soul aboard by a violent late summer storm. The four men knew they would be dead too if they hadn't just happened to be on the island instead of aboard ship when the storm blew up. They were a hunting party looking for wild game to feed the sea otter's crew. And because they were fur traders, no one knew where they were. Secrecy was a big part of the fur trade in 1808. In fact, departing fur traders routinely lied to family and friends and other mariners about where they were going just to make sure the competition didn't find out through some back-channel way. No, no one would come looking for them. And it would be years before any other ship would come to this remote place on this wild and dangerous coast. So now, just two years after Lewis and Clark's visit to Oregon, these four men looked out to sea from the edge of the wilderness and knew they were on their own. They had the clothes they were wearing, the rifles they were carrying, a total of six pounds of gunpowder and twenty of lead, and whatever might float ashore from the shipwreck. These four stranded fur traders were about to embark on possibly the most remarkable overland journey of their century, a century that A. had just started and B. was studded with remarkable overland journeys. Over the next two years they would walk, and occasionally float, from the mouth of the Umpqua River, the site of present-day Reedsport, to the mouth of the Mississippi River at New Orleans. And outside of the frontier community in Louisiana, almost no one would ever know about it. According to the Louisiana Gazette, a newspaper published out of St. Louis, the stranded mariners, Baptiste Laval, Mike O'Connor, Jean Logier, and Emmanuel Silver, spent a little time on the island hoping for the best. Most likely they stayed there for the rest of the summer and wintered there by the sea where they could wait for better traveling weather in the spring and live on fish, saving their precious ammunition. Then they set out cross-country, heading back toward civilization. These four shipwrecked sailors were setting out to do, with almost nothing, what the Corps of Discovery had done two years earlier with the full resources of the United States government. There's really no way of telling precisely what route they chose. Laval's journal, which told the story in some detail, has been lost. We do know that they first went east to the Willamette Valley. From there, they might have gone south and crossed the Rockies in San Francisco, as travelers following the interstate highways to Louisiana typically do today, or they might have gone straight across the Oregon High Desert and crossed into southern Idaho, where a few years later, the Astorian party would get into so much trouble. Whatever route they chose took them across deserts and swamps and through dense forests. Somehow they got over several rivers, 
Following Native American trails, they made their way through mountain passes. Laval, well-schooled in woodcraft from his career as a fur trader, took the lead. The mariners met up with many Native American tribes along the way, many of which were very helpful. Laval, like many fur traders and voyageurs of his day, was very careful to be friendly and solicitous with the tribe members, read potential customers, that they met, and most of them responded in kind. Others, though, did not. The Gazette article, quoted in Don Marshall's book, Oregon Shipwrecks, says at least one tribe tried to hold the men as prisoners. It doesn't mention how they escaped. The Mariners spent the winter of 1809 to 1810 somewhere northwest of present-day Amarillo, Texas. Perhaps they stopped to stockpile food and fuel to make it through, or maybe they found a friendly tribe to take them in for the season. We just don't know. What we do know is that the summer of 1810 found the four of them floating down the Red River to the Mississippi and down the Mississippi to New Orleans. They arrived sometime in August, to judge from the date of publication of newspaper reports of their arrival, and it had been almost exactly two years since their ship and shipmates had gone down, and they'd covered a good 3,000 miles. They had made it. All four of them. So why did they keep so quiet about an adventure story that rivals in scale and audacity the wildest tales of American exploration? The story that got into the Louisiana Gazette was remarkably vague, and it's entirely likely that Sea Otter was not the real name of their ship. And as far as I've been able to find, no other account of their adventure was published, suggesting that after going home they kept their mouths shut. Almost certainly this was to keep other fur traders, especially American ones, remember these guys were Brits, from finding out where they'd been. Well, okay, two of them were French, but their allegiance was to Britain. As the only four survivors, these mariners were in a great position to return to Oregon and make a killing in otter pelts, which one has to assume they subsequently did, again, secretly. We're fortunate that they weren't able to keep it completely under their hats, or one of the most amazing and important stories of Oregon history would have gone completely untold. Key sources in this story have included works by Don Marshall and Henry R. Schoolcraft. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) ¶¶